Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, we're welcoming back two Politicology favorites. Returning to the roundup, Lucy Caldwell, who's a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you. Good morning. It's great to see you. And senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder and advisor to the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Our good friend, Mike Madrid. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, good morning. On this week's Roundup, first, the Democratic group launching a project to elect local elections officials, followed by the race to arm Ukraine for a longer war than previously anticipated, then how a Democratic congresswoman wants to reboot policing policy heading into the midterms. And finally, when we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to look at the Democratic funding flowing to candidates who are all but guaranteed to lose in the November elections. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast with extra episodes and explainers and strategy sessions you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts, you can navigate to the Politicology Show in that app and tap the button to try it for free. Or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. On Monday, a Democratic group called Run for Something, which recruits and supports progressive candidates, announced that it's spearheading a plan to recruit more than 5,000 candidates for local offices that oversee election administration to counter the spread of election conspiracy theories. They say they're going to raise $80 million over three years to recruit and fund candidates in 35 states to run for county election board members, county clerks, and other elections posts. Run for Something is partnering with other organizations, including Open Democracy PAC and American Bridge. And one of the co-founders of Run for Something, Amanda Littman, said in a tweet that they're working in non-battleground states, quote, because democracy is at stake even when the electoral college outcome isn't. Littman told Politico, quote, election subversion in 2024 is not going to be a mob storming the Capitol. It's going to be a county clerk in Michigan or a supervisor of elections in Florida who decides to fuck the whole thing up. The only way to make long-term democracy protection is by electing people who will defend democracy, end quote. So, Mike, we have obviously talked on the show before about the Republicans focusing on getting Republican loyalists in election official posts. How are you thinking about Democrats also focusing on these races? Well, I'm I'm relieved, candidly. I'm glad that there's out there's somebody out there who's actually thinking about this. What really should be just a a functionary's job. Um, look, California in many ways is kind of ground zero for this. With our 56 counties, we've got a host of county clerks, which are uh, reaching out uh, to my firm, which specializes in local government, asking for help because um, the uh, Republicans have put up a really fringe candidate running on explicit platforms um, saying that the elections were held dishonestly and needed to be overturned. That's in California. Okay. So this is, this is very real and it's very, and it's happening. And um, I, again, I'm, I'm relieved that the Democrats are doing this. Uh, I'm not going to be critical by saying, you know, where, where have you been? 
um, because it doesn't matter. There's no more time. I have no time for this, right? We, let's just move forward and get this done. Um, it sounds like it's a very ambitious but achievable goal. They're talking about raising $80 million. That can go a long way. The challenge, of course, is trying to identify where these threats are. And at a certain point, we're going to have to stop. And I'm, I'm saying we, meaning the kind of the pro-democracy effort with a small d, not necessarily the Democratic Party, although that they're clearly an ally in all of this, is there's going to have to be an offensive posture taken. There's only so many patches you can put um, and, and, and so many times you can look for kind of a, a burst in the dam and, and put your, your thumb in it to kind of stop the leaking. You have to develop an offensive strategy because it is impossible to win every election defensively. And so I, I, I'm, I, I welcome this. I think it's a great development. It's important for people who are uh, listening and who may have a slight inclination to run for public office, even if you don't want to be in a partisan office, you should be um, considering uh, some of these functionary offices that are simply looking for integrity. Uh, clerks especially, though, are very professional jobs. Most of these people are simply bureaucrats who really just want to um, honestly and with integrity and accountability and transparency count votes and and help the actual process of democracy moving forward these people are under attack and so it's it's it, even if you're not inclined to run if you are somewhat active it's extremely important to find out who your county clerk is find out whether or not they are pro democracy or anti democracy and give them some assistance because these folks get such little help such little help because these offices have never been high profile before um, to engage. And if you really do want to, to make an impact, especially if you are in a blue state or an overwhelmingly red state and you're not in a battleground area and want to help the functioning of democracy, start with your county clerk's office. Make sure that those good candidates have the protection they need. And if you've got a bad candidate who's willing to uh, overturn uh, votes, then make sure that they're not sent back on election day. That's the exact advice I've given to a couple of friends who have, have no background in working in politics at all, who now want to get involved in some way. And that I, I have steered them toward figure out what the local elections administration's offices are that are that are that are open and go run for one of those. Um, and 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 they're doing that. Uh, Lucy, you've brought up the push by Republicans to flood into you know precincts to run elections before I think you brought up Steve Bannon had been making has been making this push to get his supporters to become vote counters um, turning point action which is Charlie Kirk's group called the precinct strategy quote the forefront of our mission and over the last couple of decades we've seen a nationalization of politics so what do you think this increase in focus and funding on local races is going to mean well, yeah, the the Bannon et al. approach, precinct strategy. And and folks, I mean, this is out in the open. People can literally Google precinct strategy. I think they're they have a website that's like precinctstrategy.com and you can go and it's it's all out there. It's like how to become a precinct committeeman. I mean, you can look at a lot of these states if you look at Arizona, for instance, which is actually where this precinct strategy was developed and then Bannon and others took it on. And why they're doing it, right? They explicitly yeah. say Right. You you can see that, you know, you can look at like the number of Republican um, precinct committeemen two years ago, four years ago, whatever, and you see this massive increase um, of of people, of, of bodies who are now coming out as, as part of this effort. Um, 
I think that that of course I always welcome people um, paying more attention to state and local. Uh, races. I feel like I'm screaming about this all the time. And it's it, it, when we think about the the stories lighting up the news on any given week, it's it's things like the the don't say gay bill, right? Or like alternate slates of electors. And we can be talking about these things that are really egregious and really front and center. And yet there is not a corresponding talk about thinking about control of state legislatures, right? It's like we're all focused on the federal makeup when in fact it is state legislative makeup and local local officials those are the races that are are determining these bad outcomes and i think there's no question that control of state legislatures control of um clerks offices other state and local officials that is the precipice of our democracy ahead of 2024 one thing that i i i worry about um two things. <laughs> One, the sense of of incredible urgency here. Um, maybe I, I worry about more than two things. Um, in <laughs> Between now and, and November, in more than 30 states, the deadline for filing to run for office, if you're going to run on as a major party ticket, and in some places a run at all, has passed, right? Primaries are happening. They've already happened. Right? We are quite far in the timeline right now. And in fact, in in many of in many states, the um, most of them in fact, people elected this fall are the people who will be in office on that fateful day in 2024 in terms of like are we who's are we going to mess up ballot custody? Are we going to support sending alternate slates of electors? All of that kind of stuff. So we don't have the kind of runway that these kinds of the coverage, the news coverage of these kinds of efforts might cause you to believe. And in fact, the other piece that I worry about is that in many of these places, there is not an option of electing a Democrat in some of these counties or places, right? This is a matter of you are going to have a hardcore, radicalized, Trump-style MAGA Republican, or you are going to get a Republican who is like just an old fashioned kind of like chamber of commerce style conservative who just, as Mike says, wants to be a bureaucrat with integrity. And, and so while I am glad that Democrats are waking up and paying attention to state and local offices, I think it would be a total and utter fool's errand to think that the push here is to try to get Democrats elected across the board in these races. There is no one who wants to see the Republican Party burn to the ground more than I do, but I'm also a realist about what is possible. And the people that Republicans, that MAGA, hardcore MAGA Republicans hate more than they hate Democrats are the very, very shrinking group of Republican electeds who are still holding the line. And that is happening in many corners of the country. So to think, for instance, like the the, the county recorder um, in Maricopa County, and I'm Steve Director, he is a Republican who held the line against the fraudulent audit that went on last year. He is a person who Republican infrastructure has decided is like enemy number one, 
he is an example of the kind of person who deserves the help of pro-democracy people everywhere. So while I think it's exciting to think about a large democratic group taking this kind this kind of thing on, I would really urge people to look in their communities and in this case, see if there are existing Republicans who deserve support in counties where you are just never going to see a Democrat elected to that to that office and and consider trying to fortify support for those people because this is just this is just a, a matter of of practical realities and and even an, an effort I mean they've only raised six million dollars this group they plan to raise 80 million dollars 80 million dollars across 5,000 target seats that's like sixteen thousand dollars a pop that's not that much even in a small race that's a drop in the bucket kind of IE. So so I just think we really need to be realistic about the landscape we're dealing with. And the final thing I'll say and then end this rant is that part of why the precinct strategy of Steve Bannon and others is working is because it's a bottom-up strategy that is truly being generated by on-the-ground community building. So I think that when all of us, anyone who is a champion of democracy, thinks about what kinds of uh, efforts to lend their support to, look around your community and see, are there truly grassroots <laughs> efforts happening here? Because these are the, the margins, the vote margins in these races are so small and they're so under the radar and they're never going to generate in media that these are races that you can have an impact on by like having conversations in the pickup line of your school, right? Or, you know, at your like neighborhood farmer's market really be aware of the fact that this has to include very, very high granular level community engagement. And we cannot depend on a Washington-based group to come in and magically solve all of our problems here. 100%. And by the way, when Lucy says these are areas that you can have an impact, we're not talking about an abstract you. We mean you, 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 you listener who, wherever you are, uh, right in your neighborhood, in your precinct, you can have an impact on these very, very important races. Um, which leads me to this last question, um, uh, Mike. Like, I, I want to talk just for a minute about how you would be thinking about running these races. Like, Dems are going to struggle to win statewide and federal races this year, uh, but voters don't tend to blame local clerks and elections officials for things like inflation, right? So what do you think is the best strategy to win these races at the local level? And then I will just, I I have a sort of uh, a a slightly, uh, a twist on that question, which is what kind of things do you think, like if, if the Republicans who are, as Lucy said, organizing at the grassroots level, because they're so goddamn motivated, right? Because they think the election was stolen and they want to make sure that they're in a position to, quote unquote, make sure that doesn't happen again, i.e. overturn a legitimate election. Like, what kind of rhetoric do you think we're going to see from uh, from them and also from Democrats who are opposing them? I just worry about this becoming a hyper, hyper partisanized uh, uh, thing where actually we have not good uh, sort of candidates on both sides of these races in some cases. I don't know. I worry about that. Yeah. And look, this, yeah. And, and you should. And again, my, my firm has specialized in, in a lot of local government races uh, in the West here. And a lot of this, there up until very recently, there was a virtue of these being nonpartisan offices because a lot of them simply are functionary offices. They're, they're administrative 
but but they are the cornerstone and the keystone of democracy. And so I want to reiterate a little bit with what Lucy said and kind of start with with um, where I was um, trying to head, um, and that is this. You need to begin thinking about pro-democracy candidates, and that doesn't mean your party necessarily if you want to win the democracy game. This is a progressive group self-described, the one that we're talking about, and that's that's fine, and that may work in some areas, but I don't want a progressive or a conservative county clerk. I want a competent, capable county clerk who there's no ideological way to count votes, you just count votes, right? There's no, there's no Republican or Democrat way to do that. But the reality is, in some areas, only a Republican or Republicans are running, and and those 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 small sliver of folks, right? These Lincoln Project folks, these kind of you know apostates like the three of us, you know, are or were, are really really the 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 fulcrum, the pivot point of being able to protect democracy. It's not muscling up in already blue areas and, and making sure there's a progressive as opposed to a moderate Democrat in these fights. That's not advancing the cause of democracy. It's just raising the decibel level between the red and blue war. I mentioned an offensive strategy. The best way you can run offense is if you are a blue dot in a red state. You can start working with Republican candidates, and they are out there. A lot of them are already currently office holders. You saw this with Raffsenberger in Georgia. Well, say what you will about his politics, whether you love him or hate him, that's okay. He said no to the president that he would not spoil the integrity of the election in Georgia, which would have had enormous, enormous national ramifications and probably would have led us to a constitutional crisis. Same with the county clerk in Arizona. Same with the board of supervisors in Maricopa County, Arizona. These Republicans held the line, and we don't talk enough about the fact that these Republicans were the ones who were the firewall between this conflagration on the right and a complete burn down of the electoral process in 2020. And again, say what you, you will about their politics beyond that. They did their job. They held the line under extraordinary pressure. And those are the types of people that we want in office. So uh, when we're thinking offensively, we should not be thinking about partisanship, unfortunately, at this time. That's no longer a luxury we have. It's simply about people who will stand up and do the right thing when the moment calls. And the good news is we do have an example of some of those in key pivotal areas, but they are everywhere. It's every seat we must now, we must now look at. And again, I'm going to freak people out by being a little bit optimistic yet again here. I think it's Lucy that brings out the optimism in Mike Madrid. I'm a little oh more optimistic every time she's on the show. But this is this is now the time where we get to relearn as a people how important democracy is and the civic virtue of having, even at the most local of local levels, how important the basic functions of our government are. We have forgotten that because we haven't – you know, we've had the luxury of not having to worry about these issues for decades now. These are very, very important positions. We need to approach them that way. We need to engage our communities that way. 
And the messaging simply needs to be about integrity, about competency, and those were what these offices were designed to be. So you don't need to run on inflation. You don't need to run on on, on choice or robing overturned by the Supreme Court. You need to simply run on competence and, and capacity and capability and even-handedness. Um, those don't make for the sexiest of topics, but down ticket with low information voters, I still do believe that there are more than sufficient Republican voters who are looking for that as opposed to the chaos that other things might ensue. I know that for a fact there's enough to work with Democrats and independents to keep these people in office. The challenge is literally helping a lot of these bureaucrats uh, with those campaigns. And I'll, I'll end on this. I say that because most of these people literally are not politicians, they're literally professional bureaucrats who were either appointed or ran because nobody ever wanted to be the clerk except for a small select group of people in our communities who really want to spend their lives making the process of democracy work once every two years and manage and oversee those elections with a capable, competent, transparent staff. These people are not used to the, the rough and tumble of political activity. And now suddenly they're seeing all this money and all these messages and people accusing them of horrible things and attacks on their families. And those are really attacks on democracy. And so these people are, are, are diligently trying to hold the line. The need to help them is extraordinary. Any place where you can be of assistance in terms of volunteering on these campaigns makes a critical difference. It matters not which county you're in in this country, whether it's the bluest of blue, reddest of red, or any shade of purple in between. This is the cornerstone of democracy. It's literally the town square that de Tocqueville talked about. This is how our democracy works from the ground up. It is precious. It is fragile, and it is incumbent upon every American to engage in the democratic process of protecting these offices and working to make sure that the good people uh, of this country are holding them. Over the last few weeks, the U.S. and our Western allies have finally shifted to sending heavier, more advanced weapons to Ukraine. Last week, President Biden announced an $800 million weapons package and told reporters on Tuesday that the U.S. will announce another similarly sized package in the coming days. At the outset of the Russian invasion, the U.S. and allies provided Ukraine with weapons and equipment like sniper rifles, helmets, medical kits, uh, portable shoulder-held stinger and javelin missiles according to the New York Times. And in recent weeks, they've shifted to heavier weapons like anti-aircraft systems and anti-ship missiles, armored drones, howitzers, and even tanks. According to the Times, Biden said these weapons were tailored to stop, quote, the wider assault we expect Russia to launch in eastern Ukraine, end quote. The increase in heavy weapons comes with an increased risk of antagonizing Russia, according to the Times. Uh, Russia sent a formal warning to the U.S. last week warning that Western shipments of the most sensitive weapons systems could bring what they said was unpredictable consequences. While the U.S. and some allies are sending in heavier weapons, other NATO countries are reluctant to increase weapons shipments, fearing Russian escalation. Um, one minister in Germany's new government raised concerns that heavy weapons would mean tanks and would result in Russian escalation. One of the other concerns is sending Ukrainian forces heavier weapons that they'll be able to use quickly. And that's why the U.S. and allies are trying to increase the flow of Soviet-era tanks and artillery uh, and, according to the Times, again, potentially fighter planes. Now, 
there's a need for Soviet bloc standard howitzer shells since NATO uses a different size shell, and it could take Ukrainians up to six months of training before operating a U.S., German, or British-made tank. So they're trying to supply Ukraine with uh, Soviet-era equipment that they've already been trained how to use. The Washington Post reported on Wednesday that the Ukrainian Air Force has at least 20 additional fighter jets available after shipments of parts have allowed them to make repairs. They've also received helicopters, uh, including some from the United States. All of this comes as the Pentagon prepares for a shift in the type of fighting that will happen as Russia focuses on the Donbass region. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said that it will be a whole different level of fighting, a whole different type of fighting. And the Washington Post reported that the fighting in Donbass will most likely be on a larger scale than the battles around Kiev. <sighs> Mike, um, since the invasion, we've been asking for the U.S. to send more weapons and heavier weapons to Ukraine. It looks like that is now finally happening. Uh, how are you thinking about the shift to sending these heavier weapons? And as this war takes, you know, takes shape, it, it it looks like we're in for a very long haul here. Yeah, look, there's a lot there's a lot to say here, right? I mean, so much has already happened this year in just the last 56, 57 days since the invasion began. Um, look, the fact that we are talking about a, a battle for the Donbass region is is I think of of great consequence. First, it means that the offensive strategy that the Russians were trying to employ in the first 72 hours of rolling into and taking Kiev is clearly not going to work, at least not in the short term, hopefully not ever. Uh, the Donbass is where the Russians have had a significant presence for the last eight years. A lot of this is Russian-speaking territory. It's where they make some of these claims, both legitimate and illegitimate, about um, – um, um, about having some sort of sphere of influence, and and I, I guess the, the 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 Pollyanna in me wants to say there could be the seeds of some sort of, of compromise with with long entrenched fighting in this in this region, right? Again, there's already a Russian presence there has been for years. Zelensky has said we're not forfeiting one uh, inch of Ukrainian soil. I completely understand uh, why, and I agree with him. Um, but the question is how how long um, and how many civilians are going to have to um, be killed before we recognize that this could turn into a many, many months, if not years long war of attrition. Um, and and so the good news is uh, we are finally sending those armaments. The bad news is we 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 have to send those armaments because the nature of the warfare is changing. And so as we start to examine this next phase, and it's clear uh, that this is a second phase with different Russian priorities uh, and, and um, with, with a, a West that at least currently is focused uh, in a different matter, uh, in a different manner with much more unified resolve, we could set Germany aside for just a second because I think some very explosive things are going to happen with Germany uh, you know, in, the next, in the coming weeks. Um, but 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 you know NATO's demonstrating resolve. It looks like Macron should win re-election based largely on this issue. Europe is consolidated. The United States is moving armaments. China has backed off a little bit, and uh, the Russians have had to entirely redefine their strategy. I don't think you could ask for a better situation after the first phase of the war. 
But again, the second phase is entirely different. And while I'm no military expert, it's not doesn't take one to understand what's going to be required over the course of this next phase. And that is going to be long, intense shelling, leveling the entire uh, you know metropolitan areas of everything in the Donbass that hasn't been leveled already. Uh, which is a significant you know, number of, of cities with a lot of civilians, a lot of women, a lot of children, a lot of seniors. Um, a lot of men have already been off and fighting. Um, so there's, there's going to be some very horrific um, casualties that are going to be um, subsumed here. I also believe, and we got notification of this you know, yesterday, and a lot of these, these, these um, notices that are, are leaking out of, of the White House or come out with further sanctions are very telling about how we're positioning for this next phase. So let me be brief because we've been focused on the military angle. But as I have been saying, the nature of this war is dramatically different than anything we have seen before because this is the first war of the digital age. The emphasis on sanctions and communications and information warfare are going to take much greater importance in this next stage of the battle for Ukraine. There's also, and I thought this was fascinating, I sense it's to you, in the sanctions that we are limiting, uh, putting on Russia is an attack on Russia's industry related to the mining mm-hmm. of cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. This is for a reason. They're not just, you know, saying we're doing this all over or, or without, you know, any um, um, intention here. Um, this is a very methodical approach to trying to attack and destroy both their infrastructure and their exit strategy by making sure that the Russian government cannot be um, uh, taking advantage of cryptocurrency markets um, to, to either stabilize or replace its currency. Um, but but again, we have been warned, our industries have been warned in the last 48 hours that cyber attacks are coming, very considerable ones. And again, one one last point, Um, we have been at war for a decade. The Russians attacked us and attacked our democracy four or five years before 2016. They were very effective in influencing the outcome of our elections. They have been successful in the Philippines with Duterte. They've been successful in Brazil with Bolsonaro. They have been successful in Hungary with Orban. Why do we believe that they would not move off of this successful strategy of information and cyber warfare, which has worked for them, especially when their military campaign is not working? We are going to see much, much more of this, especially here in the United States, because the one thing Putin has to accomplish is not just the military uh, successes, uh, which he has yet to realize, but it's division in the West. He has to have divided democracies domestically if he's going to be successful. It's why he was laying the groundwork for 10 years. And I can't scream this enough from the mountaintops. This has been a long time coming. He's been playing the long game. Um, and he was w- successful wildly beyond his imagination with the election of Donald Trump. I think even he was surprised by how successful and how well that it worked. But the fact that he was successful there is all the more reason why they will double down in this area. 
you're going to see the influence in the French elections with Le Pen and Macron, and I'm confident Macron should win this race, but the fact that Le Pen is doing as well as she is should be horrifying to people in the West. Germany appears to be compromised at some of the highest levels of their government. Um, again, traditional allies, you know, uh, Turkey and Hungary have have certainly hedged, but th- the the Russian investment in the West with consultants, with lobbyists, with former politicians, with possibly current politicians, is paying off. It's paying off huge dividends, and we're going to see how sustainable the West's coalition is with all of these bought off entities and all these divisive uh, intra party fights. In, in, in Western countries as we enter this more long, prolonged, protracted phase of the war. <sighs> yeah. I'm going to say a little bit more about the the um, the mining operation a little bit later uh, b- because you're right, that is a, an extremely significant development. Lucy, um, how are you expecting a pivot to a longer-term war to impact uh, you know, Biden's approval, Democrats' midterm approach. Um, b- by extension, y- you know, U.S. public opinion toward this war, right? Um, we've seen so far uh, pretty strong support for, you know, if not U.S. intervention, certainly U.S. aid to Ukraine and, and you know, supplying weapons has been one of the, you know, loudest cries. Um, now that things are sort of changing uh, to a much more sort of static kind of war. Um, How are you envisioning this playing out? I think that this comes down to a messaging mandate really for Democrats that, that they will need to tackle. There's a conventional wisdom that wartime is very good for presidents, right? That being a wartime president helps. <laughs> that helps with a national sense of unity. That helps with a sense that we're all in this together and you're our leader. This war is both our war and it's not, right? It's not our war in that there's not a sense that there are young men, young American troops on the ground who at this stage who are, you know, losing their lives. It's it's being fought in a way that is unlike what we've experienced in recent wartime. But on the other hand, there is also a sense that it is impacting the U.S. It's impacting our supply chain. It is exacerbating this inflationary period. And that has really been held up, I think, by Republicans, at that that reality as you know an excuse by people like Joe Biden and congressional Democrats um, for not having things in order domestically. So I think that that's a really challenging needle for Democrats to thread politically. I think that one thing we should not forget, and and I'll back up one moment here. About a week ago, I went to a a screening of a documentary about Alexei Navalny that is premiering this weekend um, on CNN. It It is an incredible film and everyone should watch it. And, you know, as a reminder, Navalny is like Putin enemy number one and is currently jailed um, in Russia. This film with, is going to win the Academy it's Award. It's amazing with, you know, no end in sight uh, for any kind of um, amazing story. And and it, I've had some experience um, 
in part because of being on the advisory board of a group called Renew Democracy, which was begun by Gary Kasparov, uh, another Putin foe, of really getting to know dissidents from around the world, you know, people like Leopoldo Lopez from Venezuela and and others, you know, many who have much, much lower pri- profiles than someone like Navalny or, you know, Lopez. And I think when you when you start to piece together these stories of dissidents around the world, you really start to see that the the that that is a responsive network to the network of authoritarian dictators. And we often don't have a, we don't highlight the, those stories of people fighting in those countries enough because we just we do not want to give seats at the table to the authoritarian countries, but it means that those stories of what's actually happening to people who are fighting for democracy in these places is is lost, is not told, is not front of mind. And we are in a global fight for democracy. I, I, my liberal husband and I were driving down the street the other day and we went by, I don't know, like whatever this sort of sad, pathetic leftover of the convoy is. And, and he made some joke about like cool country we're living in. And I said, you the know, trucker convoy it's, for it's, everybody. It's yeah. happening everywhere, right? It's happening yeah. in France. It's happening all over the world in Western democracies. And we have to realize that this is a global assault on democracy. This is a a global movement for the worst of of twisted authoritarian populism. And I say that to to come back to where we began, to say that I think that it is really going to be incumbent on Democrats to make the connection between Republican policy and Republican policy agenda and talking points to those stories of, uh, you know, autocrats and authoritarian regimes like Vladimir Putin's, like candidates like Marine Le Pen. We have to make that connection between what is happening internationally and bad actors to the Republicans here in the U.S. who are very happy to lead us down the same path. So we need to highlight and really amplify the terrible talking points of people like like a J.D. Vance who said, you know, I really don't care about Ukraine and why should I, right? Just we need to focus less on Tucker and more on the, I mean, focus on Tucker all you want, but more on how many people there are, Republicans who are asking for people's votes, who are talking this way and and really help to drive home and connect in people's minds that they are have the same impulses as these autocrats. They have just not been as successful yet. Yeah. Uh, that makes me think of one question, follow-up for you or Mike, really, which is freedom. What the fuck does freedom mean now? Because we can use that word in arguments for both of these movements, the movement against authoritarianism globally, and also it is the rallying cry of the people you are describing, of the trucker convoy, of the, right? Everybody is doing what they're doing in the name of freedom or free peoples or free societies. So what do we do with that word, freedom? Yeah. And and as you know, and we've talked about this on the Roundup before, you can look at top lines of polls and see something like, oh my gosh, thank goodness, a majority of Americans are concerned about democracy. 
And then you look at the cross tabs and the the number of those folks who are Republicans, Trump supporting Republicans, like way outnumber the Democrats and independents, um, meaning they're concerned about democracy in a way that we would tend to think is kind of sick and twisted. Um, so, so that's, that's really a challenge. And, and it is a, I think that the way that pro, what people I would consider are pro-democracy have really oriented themselves around these flashpoints, like an election, like Joe Biden won, Democrats won the majority and they're engaged in electoral fights and they're measuring progress and failure in, you know, what the bottom line number is of majorities. But these autocrats and these authoritarian people, they're in a fight for our culture. And so they are not, they're, (laughs) they are at the they are at the ballot box every day, right? In everything they do and in how they organize. And and that's why, I mean, what we talked about at the top of the roundup, that's a perfect example of the, of the, the mismatch of Democrat, how Democrats are responding to this moment. Mike, I fear the word freedom becoming, uh, what's the word? Meaningless. Uh, or 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 actually useless in common yeah. parlance because mm-hmm. it's just it's kind of like the word democracy now and exactly you know it it oh, in a in a different world you know some decade ago you used to be able to um it, the crudest shorthand possible to sum up you know the right and the left was you know this classic pairing of freedom and equality whereas on the right, right you had champions of freedom and on the right on the left you had champions of equality however the word freedom now is um the, we're talking about completely different ways of reading that word do you have any thoughts oh do i have thoughts <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, that's uh, there. There's so many angles to this, but you're really hitting on the the foundational question of what uh, really I believe the right left spectrum means anymore, because I, I think it's meaningless, and and I don't believe there is a, a right and a left anymore in our society. I think there's a top down. I think there's a populist versus establishment, and it is on what has traditionally been the American right and the American left. And part of this is because of the, of the, um, the atomization of, of freedom. And what I mean by that is um, the notion of freedom during the industrial age was pretty clear and it was often um, used in contrast to the size and scope of government. Government had such a strong influence and impact in our lives. It was the one institution which was the greatest threat to individual freedom. And that bore out the modern conservative movement, which was trying to make sure that government remained small, that it wasn't overregulating our lives. We didn't feed it with taxes so that it would grow unwieldy. In the digital age, government is just kind of this clunky, benign, old institution that is a little bit more of a nuisance than a threat. The real threats are now private companies, big tech companies. And it's why the conservative movement is no longer focused on talking about smaller government. You never heard Donald Trump once give a speech on the virtues of smaller government. You also never heard George Bush do that, by the way. 
What was Since that? You also never heard George W. Bush do that. Well, you at least heard the rhetoric. I'm not, I'm not saying Republicans have ever actually been in the business of smaller government, <laughs> but they've been in the business of saying they support okay. small government, With all right? The book bands. Reagan grew government. <laughs> yeah, right. That's yeah, right? small government <laughs> book bans. <laughs> yeah, well, and I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that because the, the Republican Party is more than comfortable using big government as a club to force people into their cultural paradigm. That's a sign of a uh, – first of all, it's not really much of a public uh, – uh, much of a political party as much as, as it is a gang, right? That is just kind of using government force as a cudgel to, to force its view and impose its view upon society. It is literally the exact opposite of everything I became a Republican for. It is using the coercive power of government, right, and eliminating freedom – now, now, when your identity is so ingrained in believing that you're an American and nobody else is, you start to bastardize the terminology of things like freedom and democracy. And as Lucy said, these things are kind of horrifying. <laughs> these people's view of democracy and freedom are quite horrifying. And the reason why this is happening is because I think things in society have so profoundly shifted, literally in our lifetimes, that the whole idea and concept of what we're actually fighting for are, are essentially render, rendered meaningless. And so uh, you know, freedom is, be, has become, unfortunately, in the eye of the beholder. If, if it's a society that I want, then, yeah, we're free and this is a democracy and we are, you know, this is the American dream. If it's not and the other political party wins, even if they are advancing a, a more textbook explanation of what is of what is a freer, more small D democratic society, uh, I, I think you are the end of the republic. Uh, you, you're a threat to everything that the American idea was about. And that's where we're at. And I don't see that necessarily getting better um, before that scares people. The only, the only real solution to this fight that we are talking about in terms of democracy versus authoritarianism, it's not about Republicans and Democrats. God, God bless everybody for thinking that, and, and I'm not saying don't fight that fight because it's important, but it's a much, much, much bigger fight that we are already in the midst of. It is not coming. It is a global fight between, again, democracy and authoritarianism, it's and it's, it's what Lucy was pointing to earlier. Yeah. The influence of foreign governments in our democracy and our democracy's influence in foreign governments, it's already there. It cannot be stopped, and it's going to start growing exponentially. So if you are a lover and a believer in freedom and democracy in the way that you view it, the way all of us view it, your allies aren't necessarily going to be other people in blue states. They're going to be people in foreign countries that either have advanced democracies or under the threat or, or existence of authoritarianisms and their allied uh, relationship, their interconnectedness, this transnationalization of political parties becomes of, of absolutely paramount importance. We are going to see a globalized network of people who want to advance a liberal, a classically liberal agenda. The only way it can survive is by globalizing the network. It's by thinking bigger than the problem that infects America because America is not strong enough on its own to be a bulwark against the authoritarian threat. It's just not. And I think that's what we're realizing. And that's what this moment in Eastern Europe is really telling the world is it is the, it is the individual's fight for a liberal society 
Um, and and if we globalize as as a as a people as a species as we transnational as a party, we can win. If we try to fight it multilaterally, state by state, mm-hmm. we will lose. Here, here. Let's put a bookmark in that. On Wednesday, Politico published an article about Virginia Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger working to show her support for law enforcement heading into the midterms. Spanberger is one of many Democrats who are worried that the calls to defund the police in 2020 are going to hurt their chances in midterms this year. Reporters from Politico joined Spanberger while she spoke uh, to over a dozen police officers from the Culpeper Police Department and joined officers in a ride-along. She said, I think that was a terrible idea, speaking of the defund the police uh, rhetoric. She said, quote, if your words are defund the police, they're going to think you mean that. And they know the world is on fire. They know things are upside down. They know they're afraid. They know there is a pandemic. So why are you going to just say you want to do something that you actually maybe don't want to do? End quote. Spanberger's outreach to law enforcement falls in line with a broader Democratic strategy that we talked about on the show a couple months ago when the DCCC, that's the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, began urging vulnerable Democrats not to let GOP attacks go unanswered and to push back head on. So, Mike, the DCCC did some polling back in January that showed Democrats trailing by four points on a generic ballot of battleground districts. Generic ballot for listeners is when you just test uh, Republican or Democrat without any names attached to it. So you get a generic reading of voter attitudes. When respondents were told points from Republican attack ads like defunding the police, that gap widened to 14 points. But when voters heard a Democratic response, like showing their support for law enforcement, the Republican edge narrowed to six points. So how are you expecting Democrats to combat the defund the police attacks? And what should we expect to see from other candidates to show their support for law enforcement? Well, let me get really in the weeds here on, on how campaigns run on the ground. Um, and again, there's only going to be about 15 to 20 really, truly competitive seats um, nationwide in the, in the House. Um, but this is a strategy that can be used um, kind of universally uh, for Democrats here. Uh, and that is they're going to have to leverage their relationships with police unions, uh, not unlike the way they have with teachers unions, is can, voters you know, are looking for third-party messengers and indicators of, of, for groups to see how it is that candidates are going to respond and one thing that uh, Democrats in some states started to do in the mid-1990s during kind of the, the last time crime was a really big issue, and again, crime is going to be a definitive issue uh, in the midterms. I was saying that back on the show in January. I'm absolutely convinced it still will be, um, is is having the support. People have to remember that police officers' unions are still unions. <laughs> they may be made up largely of conservative police officers, but they're unions, and those unions support for Democrats need to be leveraged exponentially so that there is a badge behind Democrats saying you support the blue, you support officers. The, the police unions are much more interested in wage uh, and pension numbers than they are about Black Lives Matter or other social, uh, cultural issues. That's not their job. I'm not going to suggest that there isn't some influence in that, but they are unions. And so once you have unions backing, law enforcement unions, both police and fire, 
backing local candidates, leveraging those third-party messengers to say they're supportive of police and fire is the best way to blunt this attack. The Republicans are absolutely going to say whether it's true or not, whether a Democrat has said it or not, they're going to use the defund the police argument. It's too good an argument that has been handed to them, and it is incredibly powerful. The numbers are really – they're so strong, Joe Biden had to say in the State of the Union that I don't support defunding the police. Like if that's not a sign – this is that this is like, you know, a, a train coming, a political train coming down the tracks. I don't know what is. It, it could literally um, have create a, a, a red wave. The way to blunt that is to have the union, law enforcement unions, be the front line of defending and saying, not only does this candidate not want to defund the police, but they've given me the equipment, the, the higher pay, the increase in staff to do our job on the streets to fight back. Again, this is a tactical messaging strategy. That's the way what I would be leaning into if I was a, a Democrat on the ground and, and, and a Democratic consultant advising these candidates. Yep, absolutely. Lucy, Biden included a line about funding the police, right, in the State of the Union. Late last month, he asked Congress to include $30 billion in the 2023 budget for state and local governments to add more police officers. Democrats included $350 billion for policing in the American Rescue Plan, which received no Republican votes. What are ways you think Democrats could leverage their support for police to persuade voters heading into November? Or do you think that that do you do you think that the defund the police thing is just so ingrained uh, that that they won't be able to overcome it? I'm long pausing here because I'm mm. I'm gonna um, <laughs> I'm going to uh, shed my incredible biases against police, and I should just note here <laughs> that even when I was a Republican operative, I was writing. I worked for a think tank that was fighting police unions. And I was writing, I I was writing pieces in National Review about how um, pernicious and bad police unions are in National Review. And I was like getting all this hate mail that was like, National Review has become MSNBC. And this was in, (laughs) this was in like the year 2013, right? So I'm just, I'm, I'm going to shed that. I do think how the world has changed. Police unions are (laughs) horrible and I stand by that and they are sick and twisted entities. And we should not tolerate police unions when we think about the fact, let me just say this, that police unions literally create environments where uh, a, 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 like after a police has killed, there have been, there have been episodes where a policeman has killed someone, right? Like discharged their weapon, killed the wrong guy or whatever. And there are, there are on record, like on body cam footage, whatever, Examples of times where a policeman has called his union rep before calling for backup, like, you know, there's a police unions just must say this are fundamentally incompatible with the role of policing. So just Mm. bookmark that and some food for thought. Okay, let's definitely bookmark that. I want to come back to that. Now, I will say this. They are undeniably incredibly, incredibly powerful lobbies, not just nationally, but in in states. And and actually, if you go and look at things like union reform packages that have been passed around the country, if you look at states that are thought of as having been like the harshest on unions in recent years, like states like Wisconsin in the Scott Walker era, you can go and see that they made these beautiful carve outs right and left for fire and police unions. And so there's no question they have 
a huge amount of pull. I think that it is going to be hard for Democrats to get away from that messaging as it will be in a lot of places because, because of course, also I should note, police are not the same as police unions, right? Like rank and file officers are not the same as these police unions, many of which are basically run by, um, you know, like people who have, who have not actually served or gotten into a cop car in years, right. Or been in uniform. Um, but, but I think that one of the things that makes the defund the police piece bad and challenging is that within the Democratic Party, and and this is beyond just this issue, there is there is not at all rigor in telling the progressive left wing of the party to shut the f up in a lot of these scenarios. And this is in part, I think, because more broadly, both parties are um, are really have shifted into thinking about their turnout game as being turnouts at the far ends, right? Like I'm so afraid that, you know, let's use, let's use Virginia as an example. That's Spanberger's home state. We were just talking about Abigail Spanberger. Last year when Glenn Youngkin beat Terry McAuliffe and he was trying to distance himself from Trump a little bit, didn't appear with Trump, but a lot of consultants were really, really concerned that Trump's base would not show up for Glenn Youngkin in the election. They did. (laughs) And in contrast, Terry McAuliffe, the Biden voters, right? Terry McAuliffe didn't, there's, I think, a misperception, like Terry McAuliffe lost because there were a bunch of people who voted for Biden who then became like Biden Youngkin voters. There are some of those people, no question. But the bigger reason that he didn't turn out Democrats is that a whole bunch of Biden voters just like didn't turn out for McAuliffe. They just stayed home. They just didn't participate in that election. And so I think a lot of the consulting class and a lot of the campaign apparatus is in this real push-pull of figuring like, well, well, we have all these, you know, like Gen Z uh, voters, we need to capture their energy, and they're mad at the Democratic Party because they don't think that the Democratic Party is delivered for them. So we need to make sure that we are like ginning them up. And the fact that those are also the loudest voices in the room on social media and otherwise gets in the gets in the brains of not only candidates but also campaign operatives. And so you end up with you end up seeing these um, parties swing way to one end of the spectrum when it is not actually really very reflective of what the 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 core wants. And so that is a perennial problem, but it has become, I think, much bigger on this issue in particular for Democrats. A related issue that I've been thinking about ahead of this November that is surfacing is, for instance, how Democrats are orienting themselves on the student loan forgiveness piece, right? That there's a lot of news this week of Biden canceling student loan debt. I have not seen really good polling on how people feel about student loan debt, but it I have trouble believing that that's actually <laughs> going to be that impactful, right? That's like a very narrow band of people. You can make an argument that it's probably people who don't need the help as much as some other people not taking away from anyone about how hard it must be to have 
mounts, mountains of student loan debt. But it is an example of how much the, the knee-jerk reaction of the democratic machinery is to run as far to the left as as possible. And so I think they should look to people like Spanberger, um, but TBD, if that happens... And I'm sorry for that rant about police unions. No, nope, that was no. That we should we should come back to that because I'm I'm curious. I'd love to dig deeper. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we're watching. Lucy, what do you have for us? Well, I'm keeping my eye on something a little bit weird, which is whether or not universities reinstate requiring the SAT and ACT ahead of next year's admission cycle. So during the pandemic, many, many universities stopped requiring the SAT or ACT as part of their admissions process. And this had been that had kind of begun um, in the last decade, two decades, where some schools had gone to uh, a testing optional application. But a lot of that was kind of like in in name only, right? There was still an expectation that, of course, you needed to take the SAT. I think for people my age and older, which probably most of the listeners are, it would have been inconceivable if you were applying to college and high school that you wouldn't have to take the SAT. But indeed, it has become um, a relic in many, many universities' admissions process. So MIT recently announced it's reinstating the SAT and AC or ACT as a requirement. And it brings up a lot of questions, I think, to do with uh, opportunity for students and whether it's an even playing field and uh, whether or not we could consider a standardized test a good uh, a good representation of a person's ability, knowing what we know about the you know massive hundreds of millions billion dollar uh, standardized testing prep industry. Um, and I think it's it's just one of those we when we think about how much universities become and especially elite universities become a sorting mechanism of children right of like 16 17 year old students applying to college and and what a big impact that actually can have on people you know in the in the decades that follow it's it's this this question of this this piece that has been such a such a core component of of that i think seeing h- how universities respond and 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 what they do whether they all begin reinstating the sat like mit or not um is is interesting it is interesting um mike what are you watching under the radar well i think it's uh, under the radar at the moment but it's going to uh, in the next couple of weeks probably pop out in full ugly um public view and that is Germany, uh, Germany's role in um, Russian energy, Russian gas, and their their slow um, rollout of helping Ukraine, and the big question is why. And I think what we're going to find out is just how deep the tentacles of Putin's regime ran into buying off uh, politicians, current and former, and lobbyists in 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 Germany. Um, their entire uh, energy industry went from being largely nuclear to um, shifting towards Russian oil and gas, kind of in the opposite direction of a pro-climate change position, which has left them 
really um, it, it, at the mercy of of Putin right now and um, has slowed its ability to engage in uh, Ukraine, both in terms of the uh, selling or transference of, of heavy artillery and weaponry, uh, and even the slow crawl to getting into NATO and, and, and um, backing those forces in the first place. It, it, it kind of strange credulity to believe that Putin was not aware of this um, and was hoping for that to be the wedge that would uh, prevent NATO from unifying. But it is deeply, deeply ironic that as we're watching the slaughter of innocents in Bucha and Mariupol and Erpine, um, th- that it is Germany, Germany of all countries, that is the slowest to engage in stopping this type of behavior um, and the complicitness within which we will find high-level German, um, again, lobbyist politicians and consultants, I think it's going to be really um, damaging to Germany. I think it's going to be very compromised. I think it will be extraordinarily embarrassing. And my hope is that it can be rectified sooner rather than later because we need uh, a Germany not just in the coalition but leading the coalition, um, especially as as Macron seems to be, um, you know, dealing with domestic issues internally. The West cannot cannot uh, be anything other than forward thinking, and Germany has is too compromised at the moment to do that. Keep your eyes peeled. Uh, I just want to. Um... Uh, reprise a story you mentioned earlier and add a little bit more context, which is the sanctions, the new round of sanctions uh, that the Treasury Department just announced on Wednesday. Um, Because among them uh, was what Forbes called a landmark designation, marking the first time a crypto mining operation has been sanctioned by the United States. Um, Now, the cryptocurrency mining and industry uh, in Russia is uh, reportedly the third largest in the world. and specifically, the sanctions named a company called BitRiver, which claims to be the world's largest provider for green cryptocurrency mining, which is mining using uh, renewable energy like hydro and solar. And the company is based in Switzerland, but it operates out of three offices in Russia. They also have um, presences in China, Japan, UAE, South Korea, uh, Germany, and USA. Um William Callahan, who's a former USDEA special agent in charge, and he's now a director of government and strategic affairs at a compliance company uh, named Blockchain Intelligence Group, says that this won't put BitRiver out of business or stop them from mining new cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, but make it illegal for U.S. citizens and U.S.-based exchanges to buy those coins. He also said financial institutions, cryptocurrency exchanges, and suppliers of mining equipment must take extra efforts to ensure that they are not transacting with the Russian cryptocurrency ecosystem. Here's the plot twist. These sanctions might actually backfire and have the opposite of the intended effect. Um, Jason Williams uh, of Morgan Creek Digital Asset put it this way. They make Putin's in a, they make Putin's ability to mine stronger by stranding assets in Russia that are already hooked into renewable energy resources all over the country, and hashing sanctioning those companies strands the assets and allows for nationalization of these investors' equipment. So what we might see as these companies 
re- respond to the sanctions is a whole bunch of to- of like top tier infrastructure and equipment that is already uh, plugged in and going in uh, multiple places all around the country now belong to Vladimir Putin and uh, and he can do with them what he wants. And so uh, I think it's I think this is something to watch because uh, I think it's likely to backfire. Um, all right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. And Mike? Find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. And we'll see you next week. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>